couple poems that I have a couple poems that I'd like to start with as a kind of prologue, and I'm re I want to read both of them because I couldn't decide which one was was uh, preferable. But they're both uh, meaningful to me. One was a poem from Hafiz called Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. And actually someone, the person who offered this poem to me has been in the forest refuge here for many, many, many months. And uh, anyway, I'm thinking of her right now as a long-term yogi and bearer of this uh, poem. And I think it speaks to what we're doing here. Cast all your votes for dancing. I know the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But you are with the friend now and look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drop, drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and my dear, from the most insignificant movements of your own body. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> you are with the friend now. Learn what actions of yours Delight her. What actions of yours bring freedom and love? Wherever, whenever you speak of the divine, dear pilgrim, my ears wish my head was missing so they could finally kiss each other and applaud all your nourishing wisdom. Oh, keep squeezing the drops of the sun from your prayers and work and music and from your companions' beautiful laughter and from the most insignificant movements of your body. Now, sweet one, be wise. Cast all your votes for dancing. This afternoon, I was kind of hung up on this, this line, but you are with the friend now. And what I like, I like to think of the friend as the capacity within you to notice what's happening. And this friend can become a great ally in the work that we're doing, in this going against the stream of our ordinary habits. Because it's likely today that you were visited by lots of different of those, what are called torments of the mind, lots of the common hindrances that, how many of you, I'm wondering, planned your escape today? How many of you felt a little bit of doubt? Why am I here? Thank you. Any of you get lost in your fantasies of how you could have things more pleasant doing something else? How many of you railed against yourself or, or someone else here or the place or the food or whatever? Okay. How many of you felt worried, restless, agitated, anxious? How many of you felt the classic feeling of sloth and torpor? Now, 
on the first day of a retreat, these things don't feel like our allies. They don't feel like our friends. But in fact, the, even these states, when, when, we make, when we utilize the friend of awareness, even these states become uh, our allies. They have the effect of bringing us more into contact with reality, with what's here. And in fact, those, those very experiences uh, that are so unpleasant when they go unnoticed, so tormenting to our minds when we're lost in them, once they meet the light of attention, they become the tenderizing. They become, as one teacher, Trungpa Rinpoche, calls the manure of bodhi. They tend to tenderize our hearts and help us have some sympathy for the painfulness of what it's like to actually be with ourselves. And this is, in the long run, this is really good news. So the second poem, and really in the same vein, and it's another Hafiz poem, this is Hafiz Night, and it's the poem entitled, It Felt Love. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So you hear from both of these poems that the light of attention, the light of recognition, seeing the counterfeit coins in the first poem, seeing the habits that ruin your life, seeing where it is that our heart needs attention, needs love. This is what, this is the process of opening. The, as Rumi put it, the, the cure for pain is in the pain. It's learning how to not be so lost in and absorbed in the pain, but to wake up to the experience of it and bring that quality of, of comprehension. Oh yes, this is really painful. This is the wanting mind. This is the, the doubting mind. This is the aversive mind. That subtle shift from being carried along by the states of our mind and our thoughts to being able to notice them, it may seem like, it may seem as though it's not that big a deal. But you will discover over the course of your practice that this little shift from being lost to noticing, not noticing, to noticing is literally the difference between bondage and freedom. And this is the friend that you will hopefully uh, cultivate and use and, and grow into, a, uh, into have a deep bond with. It turns out to be none other than your, than your own mind. This is all just a segue into speaking tonight about the, how the Buddha discovered what a friend we have within us. The Buddha's way to happiness, the Buddha's path to happiness, the title of this retreat. It's really a talk about the, the teaching that he gave, the first teaching that he gave after his awakening. So I want to go back to just a little, um, a little bit about the story of the Buddha. Many of you know the story very well, but I just want to take us back to 
the night where the Buddha sat under the famous bow tree, the Bodhi tree. And he had been doing a lot of practice, very much similar practice to what you were doing, and had developed quite a, a strength of mind and a steadiness and a, a, a good deal of concentration. His mind was very, very bright and open. And he made the determination not to rise from his seat until he found something in the flow of experience that he could, could say, this is freedom, or this is, this is a reliable place for my uh, attention to rest. Because he had seen in the course of his, of his own longing, his own confusion about where happiness was to be found, he had seen that everything that he had experienced up to that point, even the most rarefied experiences, even deep meditative experiences, he had seen that they, although they were deeply pleasurable, deeply inspiring in many cases, eventually they would pass away. And he saw that anything that arises and passes can't really be clung to. And no experience that we have, no title, no name, no anything about us can be claimed to be uh, truly ourselves because it passes. Every job we have passes, our bodies get old, and he saw that it was everything was in a state of flux. So he had already tried most every possible human uh, experiment with finding happiness until he made this determination to just stop. And I, I really see all of us as, as having done that by coming even to this short retreat. You already know to some degree that peace uh, Whatever that is that, you, that we all long for is an inside, it's an inside job. So like you, he sat down, he stopped, and he was faced with the that flywheel that Gunaratna spoke about, the, the, ma- the mind rolling along, the madness of our minds. And he was met with, with all the same kinds of torments of the mind and same kind of temptations views in the mind saying, you know, it would be much better to go save the world right now. You're being very selfish. It would be much better to have, have some kind of good food and fill yourself and, and have some more fun or do some chanting or do something. <laughs> do some prostrate, whatever it is. His mind was telling him to do anything but, but stay put. So, and this speaks to the conditioning that all of us carry. We come on a retreat with a, having received a, a very strong cultural message. that in order to be valuable, you have to stay busy. You have to be busy. And we wear the sense of busyness as a kind of, as a kind of badge of, of self-importance and honor. And if somebody asked you how you are, we often say, I'm really busy. And we feel a little pumped up when we say it. And so we care, our, our habits are so deeply conditioned to be uh, compulsive uh, that it really is hard to stop. It's 
hard to keep quiet and to look within. But you've stopped, like the Buddha. And you were faced today with all the residue of, of your life. As one teacher put it, if you want to understand your past, look at your present experience. This is not as a, a, an excuse for any kind of self-blame, but it's more to see that we are the, the heirs of, of what we have practiced in our life, what our habits are. But he went on in a much more hopeful way, saying, if you want to understand your past, look at your present experience. But if you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. What kinds of seeds are you planting right now? At this moment right here, the only place that life is, is it what could be called an open field of creativity, open field of possibility. We were talking last night about this deliberate decision to use our present moments to pay attention, to open our hearts and minds to what is here, the world around us, the world within us. So this is what the Buddha did sitting under the Bodhi tree. And by being very steady, by having his mind and body very harmonized, very, and his attention very bright, he was able to notice that flow of those mental states, all those different stories that his mind was telling. He was not so carried away by them. And all the different temptations of his mind, he noticed, ah, this is, this is the wanting mind, this is the aversive mind, all the, those states that I described before. But another interesting thing happened. The more he paid attention to these states, the more he used them as his path, you could say, the brighter and steadier his mind became. The more tender his heart became. As he felt things, as his mind, as his mind opened to what was there, it had this kind of alchemical effect of brightening his mind and tenderizing his heart. And I have the, the good fortune of having led retreats now for 26 years. And it's, it's a remarkable thing for us to, and I know people who serve at retreats as well, the, the kitchen staff and the managers and, the, and all the different people that work at retreat centers, they get to see what happens when you come on retreat. People, we all come in contracted, eyes kind of dimmed, bodies tight, little suspicion, little pissy, irritated, and given the conditions of safety and the continuity of attention, again, planting those seeds in a safe environment, and it's as though that rose that has received the light opens its heart, give to, gives to this world all its beauty. It's truly remarkable. The light comes into the eyes. There's such a sweetness, there's such an innocence in each of us. And I'm reminded of that line from Thich Nhat Hanh, where he says, you who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being that destitute child, come home and reclaim your heritage. Your heritage is such, is such beauty, such sweetness. And this is, and how do we discover this sweetness? In the same way that the Buddha did. 
sitting down, keeping quiet, and meeting our experience and letting it tenderize us. Rumi has another poem where he says, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly. Let it cut more deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. Something missing in my heart has made my eyes so soft, my voice so tender, my need of love absolutely clear. This is a natural process of, of slowing down, settling in. It doesn't feel like it's a cause of happiness on the first day, so this is why I'm telling you this. So as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, as his mind brightened, his heart opened, in fact, his mind became so bright that it was literally shining in its clarity. Everything reflected so clearly. Everything seemed much more clearly. And an interesting, another interesting thing happened to him. The more he paid attention, the, the more interested he became in, in what was in his mind, rather than either wanting more of what, what he had in his mind or whatever the, the thoughts were that, uh, that he was having, more interested in just the process of what his mind was doing. And when he was interested, I'm taking some liberties here, when he was interested, he wasn't pushing anything away. He wasn't trying to hold on to anything. He was simply being curiously attending to the behavior of what was ever, whatever was going on. And he began to see something that seems quite obvious when we think about it, but was quite profound when he met it meditatively. He saw that whatever came into his mind arose, changed, and passed away. And that anything he, that we could try to hold on to produced a sense of stress. If you got if he got caught up in liking what's there, or not liking, or reacting to what was there, he felt a kind of stress. He saw that because it was changing, you can't hold on to it. It's not reliable as a place to rest, whatever is coming into your mind, your body, your experience. And he also saw that all those stories that his mind was telling him couldn't possibly all the different views about himself, we'll talk much more about that as we go along, they could not possibly define him. They were just thoughts. So those thoughts that you had today, they're not, they're not who you are, they're thoughts. And how many did you have today? And where are they now? And what do you experience when, in these few moments when you're without them? Where, where do you put yourself now? So we begin to see, he began to see that, that all that was in his mind was, was in some ways very selfless. It was just doing its own thing. And the more he noticed, the more he relaxed. Stop pushing, stop pulling, and he relaxed. He fell into this great sense of serenity and equanimity. And he touched into what he discovered was a much more reliable kind of happiness than he had experienced before. Because every other kind of happiness that he had experienced before 
depended on satisfying some kind of hunger, depended on getting that, that sweet that he, that he wanted, getting that person that he wanted, getting rid of that person that he wanted to get rid of. It was all about satisfying some kind of hunger, what he called uh, dependent happiness, dependent on conditions being a certain way. Do any of you have any of those today? Did any of your sense of well-being depend on what was going on? It's so innocent because when it's pleasurable, we know, yeah, this is great. When it's not so pleasant, it's, we, we think that it has to go away, otherwise I can't be well. But he was beginning to touch a well-being that didn't depend on what was going on in his mind. There was still pain in the body, still all kinds of mental states coming, going. But his, his sense of well-being was, was untouched by whatever visited. There's a famous sutra that he, he used where he said, luminous is the mind brightly shining, and it is uh, colored by all the, the defilements that visit. Thus the uh, unlearned or unpracticed person doesn't understand, so they, they don't cultivate their mind. He goes on to the more uh, meditative version. Luminous is the mind, brightly shining, and it is untouched by the defilements that visit. A reminder that this shift from being just carried along, lost, to noticing is, that, is very important. So any moment of noticing, it's not, it's not uh, just a simple matter. Of course, to notice so that it has an, a meaning to you, mindfulness has the quality of not just a kind of distant glance at what's going on. It has the quality of being, of being very direct, very face-to-face. So when there's aching or burning or pain or if there's, there's someone saying worry, you want to directly experience it as much as you're able to. Directly experience it. You want to not only directly experience it, you want to notice as much as you can and not to judge yourself if your mind bounces off of things that are difficult because that's our habit. But as much as we can, begin to notice directly and to stay with that experience. Notice how it behaves, what happens to it, whether an ache or a pain gets stronger, whether it changes into another one, whether it vanishes, whether it, whether it becomes enormous whether it's followed by a mood, whether it's whatever it is, we, we, want to, we want to have it be direct, we want to sustain it, and we want it to be uh, not superficial, not at a distance. And this is the attention that the Buddha brought, and it brought him this, this sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was happening. And as he rested in that what's sometimes called, as Joseph Goldstein calls it, the the, uh, vipassana happiness, the joy of equanimity, which is, he considered superior to the happiness of of special mental states, the happiness of ordinary pleasures that depend on conditions being a certain way. But as he he rested in this, in a flash of insight, his mind and heart blasted open. There was a, 
an instantaneous realization that all of his many, many years of struggle and practice uh, had led him to realize that the very reliable refuge that he had been searching for, as I mentioned last night, was none other than the, the nature of his own mind, the very consciousness through which each of us is perceiving. We've just been looking the wrong direction. The idea is to turn the other way toward this quality of wakefulness. That's why Leela this morning when she offered the instructions, she said, notice all, notice this, but let's give a few moments to notice that we're noticing. And so right now even, notice that you're noticing. Notice what that's like, just to be noticing. So it's said that in the process of the Buddha's awakening, there were, through the night, there were, there were three watches of the night. And during those three watches of the night, he saw with much more clear vision, his, his so-called eye of wisdom opened up and his, uh, this capacity to kind of see the nature of reality. And, and it's said that uh, he saw with refined vision his own uh, past lives or habits the birth and death of, of beings and according to what they practiced, what their karma was, and a liberating insight into how suffering in our lives is born from confusion and ignorance and ends through wisdom. And the recognition of how this operates in all of our lives, how we're born again and again into our internal dramas by confusion and how our dramas ease by, through seeing clearly, through wisdom. Now, that when I say this, it, you, it's something that we can begin to see moment to moment, not just some kind of philosophical idea. It's noticing what it's like when we're suffering. Are we seeing clearly how things are when we're suffering? And notice, as suffering begins to abate, isn't there often a sense of, oh yes, I have a little more understanding now. So in these teachings, it is wisdom, not so much just the, the cessation of some kind of pain, but it's wisdom that brings that most, um, most important kind of happiness, the Buddha called uh, the sure heart's release. So at first he didn't think anyone be, would be able to get what he, what he uh, discovered because it was so intimate, it was so close, it's like trying to see your own face. But he then realized that there were those who, with just a little bit of dust on their eyes, and if pointed in uh, the direction of themselves, if you're pointed in the direction of yourself, you could you can discover the same truth that he did and stop running away from this moment by running after everything. Now you've already discovered that to a degree, otherwise you wouldn't be here. But he didn't stop with this reflection that, uh, that there were uh, beings with just a little dust. He was uh, ultimately compelled to 
to go and find some of his old friends that he thought were very sincere yogis. And even though they, he thought that they had con kind of gone off the deep end because they were, they were still doing these very severe ascetic practices and starving themselves and, and very rigid and denying themselves any kind of pleasure. And he saw that all of that was, uh, was just making it making their minds weak and tired and rigid, and, and that it's never really liberated anyone. Just going to extremes of either sensual indulgence and, and falling into that misplaced faith of that things, that pleasurable things linked enough together will make you happy, or going to the extreme of denying. That's, but really finding some, the potential of finding a relief that transcends both of those. It doesn't depend on either. So he did recognize the, the, his ascetic friend's sincerity. And he went to seek them out, and they, they were quite taken with, with him as, they, as he approached. They saw that he had taken on that, that beautiful radiance that we've seen over and over on retreats. I, I really don't see, ultimately, I don't see the difference between the Buddha, the the famous Buddha and, and all of us. We're, as, as our old friend Surya says, we're just uh, sleeping Buddhas instead of awakened Buddhas. But the possibility is to awaken. When he got together with his friends, he delivered his first teaching, famous teaching called the, the uh, Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. The Dhamma means the truth, Chaka means wheel. And this is, the, this is the sutra, the teaching, where he offered his first teaching, uh, the Four Noble Truths. And I want to share just a little bit of that tonight, just to put what you've been doing all day and retreat in perspective, as I hope some of these other poems put in perspective. The first thing he shared with his friends is that the very definition of our birth. If you are born, the very definition of birth is that it is the leading cause of all kinds of stress. That if you are born, if you are born, you will have the pain, the stress, you'll have queasiness because it's not easy. You will have the stress of being born. You'll have the stress of, of illness. You'll have the stress of aging. If you happen to live to an older age, the stress of dying. You will have, inevitably, if you are born, you will have the stress of not getting what you want. And you will have the stress of not wanting what you get. You will have the stress of being separated from everything and everyone that you hold near and dear. That's just how it is. It's not an aberration. That is the, uh, that's one, those are part of the 83 problems that everyone has. <laughs> there, there's a story about the 84th problem or the 84th problems. And the 83 are all those things. But the, the 84th problem is that we don't think we should have these. And so the Buddha's prescription, and he was often called the great physician, he diagnosed our situation as 
life is stressful and it is not possible to avoid these kinds of stress if you are born. The, the, the stress I described just now is what he called dukkha-dukkha, the kind of garden variety. Everybody has this. Pain, etc., etc. And then the, the pain of change, of impermanence, and the pain of just all that it takes to deal with a life. This is how we diagnosed our situation. Now you think of this and, and you hear this just on its own and you say, well, I thought, I've heard that he was called Sukiya, the happy one. Where's the happiness in this? But it doesn't stop there, of course. He, with each of the diagnoses that he made, he had a prescription. And the prescription in this case was try to warm up to this fact. Try to open to it. Stop running away from this fact. Come to terms with the with the 83 problems. Do away with the 84th problem. See things just the way they are, open to it. And the hoped for result in that path of happiness is to be able to say, yes, I've opened to it. I've let it touch me right where it touches me. And that's what our practice is doing. It's letting pain or whatever discomfort or whatever dissatisfaction, whatever frustration, whatever state of mind, whatever state of our body, let it touch us right where we are. Not just to adopt a view about it, but to just say, okay, this is how it is right now. You don't have to like it. You just have to feel it. And perhaps as Pablo Neruda does have a little sense of humor about it. He says, what we know comes to so little. What we presume is so much. What we learn so laborious. We can only ask questions and die. <laughs> I'm sorry. Better save all, our, save all of our pride for the city of the dead and the day of the carrion. There, when the wind shifts through the hollows of your skull, it will show you all manner of enigmatical things, whispering truths in the void where your ears used to be. <laughs> so the Buddha didn't stop with the fact of stress and the, the prescription of, of welcoming it or opening to it or warming up to it. He, he went on to describe in the second noble truth. These truths are noble in that they, um, when we work with them, they, they bring a nobility. They have that effect. They are the cause of, of um, awakening, of freedom. So the second truth, he said, is that the cause of our continued stress, what keeps us especially in a state of, of mental stress, what keeps us in a state of not warming up to life as it is, is this deeply conditioned habit of wanting things to be different than the way they are, 
that 84th problem that expresses itself as a continual state of, of what he called tanha, or craving. Craving for pleasure, associating our well-being with, with things that, um, that are quite fleeting and leave in their wake a, a sense of continued, uh, continued uh, dissatisfaction. Expressing itself as not just the desire for pleasure, but the desire to be somebody, to become someone, to be caught in an endless state of toppling forward, waiting for the future that unfortunately never arrives because time is, as we know, it's always now. And we are from the moment we're born, we are fed with the, with the encouragement to cultivate the, the state of, of craving, clinging, and its hardened form of attachment. And no wonder we're tight, and no wonder our bellies are tight, no wonder we have so much anxiety. Why do we have so much anxiety? Anxiety is never about what's happening right now. It's always about what's next. When our minds are so habituated to what's next, we're left in a state, a fairly continual state of, of suspended happiness, suspended well-being. And that very state of, of hunger that we, we literally practice and are encouraged to practice, even this passage from the 1700s, from Alexis de Tocqueville. In America, I've seen the freest and best educated men of the circumstances, the happiest to be found in the world. Yet it seems to me that a cloud habitually hung on their brow, and they seemed almost sad in their pleasure because they never stopped thinking of the good things they have not yet got. And I have a tradition of sharing this passage from Sogyal Rinpoche that just puts it in such uh, direct terms, the, the way that our culture works, and something that we can just recognize as it operates in our, in our own minds. Remember, the cure for this is to open to it, is to notice it. He says, sometimes I think the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps. It's so ingenious at setting for us. As one teacher put it, 
mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, and ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that this samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So this habit of seeking our well-being through uh, being in a constant state of, of hunger uh, is very innocent. It starts because we have in our lives uh, pleasure and pain, or pleasant experience and unpleasant experience. And very quickly and very innocently, when the experience is pleasant, it's followed by a feeling of liking it. And when liking is, goes unnoticed, it's followed by a feeling of wanting. And wanting, when unnoticed, is followed by a feeling of, I've got to have it. And pretty soon, we quite innocently are hypnotized or entranced into the belief that I have to have that experience in order to be happy. What we do in the meditation practice is we try to awaken to that process. We try to start to pay attention as we are settling into our bodies. We pay attention to the, the felt experience. When it's pleasant, we notice the pleasantness. When it's unpleasant, we notice the unpleasantness because the unpleasantness is followed by disliking, followed by aversion, and pretty soon we're strategizing how to get away from the unpleasant experience. Seems very innocent, but there is a way that if we can pay attention to this flow of different reactions, it begins to loosen some of the, some of the, um, some of the dependency, dependency that we have for things to go away or to have more of what we don't have. Always wanting to topple forward. And the present moment in the this habit of craving, this second truth, it, the present moment turns into a kind of um, wasteland, of a place that we're just kind of passing through on our way to somewhere else. And maybe even in moments today you realized that maybe this is all there is, this present moment. Everything else is imaginary. It's sad that we so often miss this. And it's really the only way we, we don't really miss it. We're always here, but our mind is, our attention is somewhere else. So this was the Buddha's diagnosis of the cause of suffering, this intense habit of wanting to be somewhere other than we are, to have, be somebody other than we are, to be in a state of becoming, and the reverse side, to be, to crave, to get rid of everything, to stop everything, to make it all go away. Love to, I think that's partly functioning by our love of taking to the bed why we love to sleep so much at night. Stop it for a little while.
Fortunately, the Buddha didn't stop there. He said that there, there's a prescription for dealing with this. And he said this cause of stress must be abandoned. Let go. This is, all comes down to letting go. Everything is about letting go. As Ajahn Chah put it, do everything with a mind that lets go. He says if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you'll have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. So abandoning the cause of, of suffering, how, do, how is this achieved? How do we do this, abandon the cause of suffering? Well, it turns out, don't believe me, that every time you bring your attention, following in real time the first truth, this is stressful. Even if, if you bring that attention to the state of wanting. Now, how many of you today desired toward the end of the sitting for the bell to ring? Thank you. And was, is it not true that while you were desiring for the bell to ring, the bell became the secret to happiness? <laughs> And how many of you were suspended in that state of weight? Your body getting tighter and tighter, mind getting more and more reactive, and then the bell rang. And you went, ah. Oh. <laughs> now that seems like the cessation of suffering, doesn't it? That, that seems like letting go. But what really let go at that moment? All that time, what was holding on was that, not the, the fact that the bell didn't ring, it was that state of craving. So the bell isn't what makes us happy, it's the passing away of that craving. So what we do in our practice, because we won't give a full talk on the, the hindrances, this is a little bit of, of conversation about the hindrances, what we do Instead of fixating on that bell when we desire the bell to ring, we turn our attention instead toward that feeling of craving and wanting for it to ring, that waiting feeling. We open to that. We feel the, we feel the, the agitation and pain of it. Often, what you will discover that when that feeling meets the light of attention, that, that feeling itself, when it becomes known, begins to, it begins to loosen. You've taken your attention away from the, the bell, and the, you can hear, as you hear this, the objects don't matter. It could be the same thing going on. You may be having some kind of romance in your mind with somebody on the retreat, the classic Vipassana romance, where somebody triggers a strong desire. Pretty soon you're, you're off and running in a, in a whole mating fantasy and dating, etc. It doesn't matter what the object is. We pay attention to that state. And when you pay attention to it, it shows itself as a changing condition, as something that's just arising and passing. And often, it will melt away. The pain of craving will have been abandoned, relinquished, without having the bell even ring. So maybe experiment the next time you want the bell to ring. Take your attention off the bell and just feel how much you want it to ring. But don't think about how much you want it to ring. 
just feel what it's like to be in a state of waiting. You'll see that, that any state will liberate itself. It cannot withstand the light of attention. Check it out. So the prescription is to abandon this cause of suffering. We do that moment by moment by bringing attention. And we, there's much, so much to say about abandoning the cause of suffering. And it, can, it can evolve or it can expand to include the intentional renunciation of certain things that we, that we know just keep us on that wheel, changing habits. But for our, the purpose of our practice, we can notice in real time what happens when you just feel that. And this leads to the third truth that the Buddha suggested um, must be um, seen here and now. He didn't say just to adopt this as a philosophical idea about life, but to directly experience it here and now. So the third truth, he said, is that there is an end to suffering, to the stress of craving and clinging. And the prescription he offered for that is uh, to realize it, is to experience that cessation, to notice what happens, how that experience that was, that was holding you in a state of suspended well-being, how that melts away, what happens when you, instead of meet an experience with, with, grasp, with grasping or aversion, with contentiousness, with strain, with trying to make something happen, Instead, you meet it with attention. Pulling the stickiness, the grasping out of whatever you're, you're noticing. And it's really what we're speaking about today is noticing the attitude of mind that you're... As, because what you, whether you suffer or not doesn't have much to do with what's happening in your mind and body. It has everything to do with how you're relating to it, how you're reacting to it, whether there's craving in the mind, whether you're wanting something to be different than the way it is. So as we notice that attitude, as we notice that we want things to be different, we begin to know for ourselves in real time that the experience of that passing away. I was debating about sharing a, a recent experience of, um, well, the the one that's coming to mind right now is, is uh, I was driving many, it was actually many years ago, but I was driving along a little road in a little town near where I live. And I was just going along with the flow of traffic. And I came upon a, uh, a fancy, somebody driving a very expensive little sports car. And there was a couple all beautifully dressed uh, with their visors and their, their um, sweaters wrapped over their shoulders. And they were going about 10 to 20, about 15 miles below the speed limit. And I noticed that, um, that I immediately got angry, got frustrated or angry. So I had been at the time experimenting, and I'm sure you'll have many opportunities to do this on the retreat. I was experimenting with finding that the happiness of the Buddha in real time, 
using this practice of the Four Noble Truths uh, as not just an idea, but as something to really work with. So obviously, in that moment, I was instantaneously in a state of stress. This is a mild version, of course. And the, and the invitation or the prescription, ah, this must be welcome. So I just let myself feel that. And then my mind just naturally went to the cause of stress. The cause of stress was not attachment to the bell ringing, but it was attachment to my views and opinions about how fast people should drive, what kinds of cars they should drive, and what they should wear when they drive the cars. <laughs> So I could see that this was just clinging to views and opinions of how things should be. <laughs> and as soon as that was noticed, as soon as I was simply mindful of that, and it just kind of emerged. I didn't have to think much about it. As soon as that happened, it, it, there was a kind of softening. Ah, this is the end of suffering. And then the fourth truth that the Buddha talked about is that there's a path. I've been alluding to it all night. There is a path to the cessation of suffering. And the, that's the diagnosis. And the prescription is this must be cultivated. This must be developed. And that path is, at its core, at its center, is the path of mindful attention. And it is. It is a vast path, includes everything in our lives, including wise, um, wise uh, understanding, wise thought or intention, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood, bringing attention to all of these different areas of our life. What is our understanding of things? What is our intention? What motivates us? What drives us to do things? Buddha's radical offering to the whole teaching on cause and effect was that, that what you do, what really, draw, what really brings the results to whatever your actions are uh, is the um, motivation behind them. So why to bring, to notice, do I, am I giving a gift so that somebody will like me? Or am I giving it out of a, the spirit of generosity? Wise speech bring attention to our speech. So much suffering caused with speech. Our livelihood. Do we engage in livelihood that, uh, that deals in intoxicants or deals in weapons, that deals in uh, things that cause harm? So bringing attention to all these th things at the center, though, is what we're doing here, which is there's three parts of it. There's the wisdom part, which is wise thought and intention, wise understanding. There's the, the action part that brings that's meant to bring us a, a wonderful kind of worldly happiness, the happiness of, that comes from purity of our actions, of not causing harm with our livelihood, with our speech, with our bodies, et cetera, et cetera. The center of that, what makes that all possible, is the, the cultivation of uh, wise effort or energy, the effort to to cultivate the things that need to be cultivated and to stop doing the things that need to be abandoned, the uh, strengthening of our concentration and steadiness and focus, and the applying of, of moment to moment, as much as we're able to, mindful attention to all of these matters.
prescription, this must be cultivated. And then one has to uh, be able to say this has been cultivated. Done is what, needed, what was needed to be done. This all starts, this four noble truths, this whole path, starts with this friend within, this, this capacity that we have to pay attention. And it's, it continues by bringing that, applying that friendly attention to our bodies. The Buddha said something to the effect of, in this fathom-long body comes the world, comes the cause of the world, comes the end of the world, and the path leading to the end of the world. I'll just close with this brief sutra from the Buddha called A Handful of Leaves. The Blessed One was once living at Kasambi in a, wooded, in a wood of simsapa trees. He picked up a few leaves in his hand and asked the bhikkhus, how do you think of this, bhikkhus? Which is more, the few leaves that I have picked up in my hand or those on the trees in the forest? The leaves that the Blessed One has picked up in his hand are few. Lord, those in the forest are far more. So too, bhikkhus, the things that I have known by direct knowledge are more. The things that I have told you are only a few. Why have I not told them? Because they don't bring any benefit, no advancement of the awakened life, because they do not lead to the cessation of suffering, to stilling, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. That is why I have not told them. And what have I told you? This is suffering, stress. This is the origin of suffering and stress. This is the cessation of suffering and stress. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. That is what I have told you. Why have I told it? Because it brings benefit. And advancement of practice, the awakened life, because it leads to dispassion, to the fading of grasping, to the ceasing, to the stilling, to direct knowledge, to awakening. So bhikkhus, let your task be this. This is dukkha, or suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is a cessation of suffering. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. Let's sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.